Welcome back to the podcast, dear listeners. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. I hope you had a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. We are continuing our series in the Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament today. As always, this program is made possible by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And here is Michael Lane in the Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, Session 4. Welcome back to Evidence for Faith and our podcast series that we're doing the Road to Emmaus, Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament concerning Jesus, how Jesus fulfilled these. These amazing prophecies written in in some cases over 1,400 years before he was was ever born, um, he, uh, he fulfilled all of these, showing that he was the suffering Messiah that was to come. And as we've been going through, we have just finished, at this point, the book of Genesis, and we're about to start a new book. Um, we are going to be going into the book of Exodus today, starting it. We won't finish it in this lesson because there's a lot of Messianic prophecies. Overall, there's around 80 major prophecies that we're covering. And today we're going to be focusing on starting off with number 11. So if you're following along with your Bibles or if you're just listening with the podcast, that's fine. But I encourage you to to check these out. I will always try and quote verses to you as much as I can. And um, most of the time we're using the English Standard Version just to let you know because it's a word-for-word translation. And sometimes the word is very important to to know is what's being uh, written down. So we're on number 11. And the way we've been doing is I give you the number, like number 11. I will give you the passage and then I will give you a title of it. So today... Number 11, Exodus chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Exodus, and actually it's quite a few verses in this um, in this chapter. It's a very familiar passage to many people, and I'm calling this one the name of God. The name of God. So with this, let's jump in this and find out what the Holy Spirit will teach us as we explore what's found in Exodus 3. Now, to set the scene for you, most of you know what Exodus 3 is. If you've ever seen the movie Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt or whatever, uh, this is when Moses meets God on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, another name for it, um, and this is where the burning bush takes place. Moses goes up there because he sees the bush burning. And we're going to be looking uh, at the beginning here around verses uh, 13 and 14 of chapter 3. And as it it, um, reads, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am whom I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now this is, as many people know, this is the actual name of God. Uh, the Hebrew word here is Yehah. Um, it's, it's hard to pronounce, which it really means to breathe. We commonly call it Yahweh, though we know it's really not pronounced like that at all, but that's the common term for it. 
But it means, in, in literal uh, transliteration, it means to breathe or to exist or, or to be is another way to phrase it. Um, it could mean to come to pass or to be done. So there's a definitive part to this. And some Bible scholars believe that the name, uh, to say the name, if you, if you could, we don't exactly know how it's pronounced, but to say the name is actually like to breathe out the sounds of syllables. Well, actually, that's talking. But it's actually the breath sounds, as some scholars say. To the Jews, though, to this day, uh, it is a forbidden name to say of God. They won't say it. They won't even write it down. Um, so they don't, they don't do this. They, they are so careful not to ins, uh, insult and not to hold with any form of disrespect the ultimate name of God. And it's a name that says much. It does. It describes his character very well. This is the name by which God wanted to be known to his people. Because Moses is saying, okay, if, if you're sending me back to Pharaoh and to the, to the nation of Israel, who am I supposed to say? Because remember, Egypt is full of gods. They worship everything from cats to dung beetles. They worship all sorts of things. So <clears throat> Moses is wanting to know, well, what God are you? You know, he says, I'm the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so your fathers. He's, he gets that, but he says, what's your name? So um, this is the name by which God wanted to be known to his people. So where's the relationship, you might be thinking? Where am I going with this as a prophecy having to do with the Messiah? Well, <clears throat> if you were to skip into the New Testament in John chapter 8, um, verses 58 and 59, you'll start to see a little bit here of how this is being um, a, used as a messianic prophecy. Because here's Jesus in dispute, once again with the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus mentions, he's talking to them about how Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Uh, Jesus is saying this, that Abraham was so happy to see what was going to be taking place here. And, of course, they respond mockingly to Jesus that, you know, you're not even 50 years old. Oh, sure, sure, you've seen Abraham. But then Jesus says something very, very interesting. He says, and this is John 8, 58 through 59, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, look at the response that they have here in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. You see what's going on? Jesus used the actual name of God, I am, to refer to himself. This is not mere coincidence either, because Jesus uses um, this, in the book of John, he uses the title, the name, I am, in, in Greek it is ego ami, uh, um, and, and he uses this frequently in the gospel, in a number of places, uh, in chapter 4, 26 in John 620 uh, 635 641 um, 648 651 um, chapter 812 818 824 828 858 chapter 10 verse 7 verse 9 verse 11 verse 14 el chapter 11 verse 25 chapter 13 verse 19. Chapter 14, verse 6, chapter 15, verse 1, and also verse 5. And in chapter 18, verse 5, 6, and 8. In several of these, he joins his name. He's talking about himself, and he claims the title, I am. Now, there are seven of these 
that are very important because there is no doubt who Jesus is saying that he is when he's being asked and, or he's making a testimony of himself. There are some that are just, flat, uh, just as plain as can be. He's claiming to be God. You see, this is what gets me. As many times I've come across people who say Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. Matter of fact, every time he uses the title Son of Man, which was his favorite title, that's a prophecy as we're going to see out of the book of Daniel for the Messiah. So he's claiming it right there. And this is him using the the proper, the the um, the, the most important name of God, uh, Ego Ami, as he's doing this. Now, the ones in John that are so important on this, and we'll come to these later on, but I'll just let you see these. You can look them up yourself. But he says, I am the bread of life. He does this in John 6, 35, 41, 48, and 51. He says, I am the light of the world. That's John 8, 12. He says, I am the door of the sheep. That was in chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. He says, I am the good shepherd. That's chapter 10, verse 11 and 14. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the story with John, uh, Lazarus, and that's in chapter eleven twenty-five. Jesus says again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's John 14, 6. And then he does it one more time in John 15, 1 and 5. He says, I am the true vine. So Jesus uses this title frequently, um, this name of God, to refer to himself. Now, did you notice in John 8, 58 through 59, as we read, uh, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Look what they do. They pick up stones to to stone him. They're going to pick up stones and throw at him and kill him. Why? Because it is blasphemy to actually call yourself God. Well, Jesus is not blaspheming. He's actually telling the truth. You know who's really blaspheming here? Are the people that are picking up the stones. Because God is saying, I am God. And they're saying, oh, no, you're not. They're the blasphemers, not Jesus. So they picked up stones. They knew exactly. There was no doubt in their mind. They knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. Because he was saying before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I knew Abraham. You don't know Abraham. I knew him, and he was happy to see me. So this, this uh, they considered blasphemy. Actually, they were the blasphemers. So if, if Jesus was not trying to use this name in this reference to himself, then why would the Jews try and kill him? For just saying, ego and me, well, I am. That doesn't mean anything to them. But the Jews knew exactly from um, from the writings of Exodus, when Jesus says this, they knew exactly he was claiming to be the God that appeared before Moses on Mount Sinai. And Jesus is indeed God. So he is able to have that title. He deserves it. It is his because Jesus truly, truly is God. And and the name I am, it's... it's um, it's a very interesting name. Like I say, we spell it usually uh, with the, the letters Y-H-W-H. Um, now, in your Bibles, most translations, wherever you have that name, it'll be capital level letters, L-O-R-D for Lord. But it's, it's a very interesting name because um, these, these four letters uh, compo- uh, combine to form what's called a, a, a tetragram 
tetragrammaton. A tetragrammaton is this four-letter name for God, and it, it, it implies his existence. It implies his nature, that he is God. By saying this, he is self-existent. He is affirming that God is uh, not dependent upon any source for his existence, um, and it's got tremendous theological meanings if you want to dig into this on your own. It's, it's a phenomenal name, the great I am, and Jesus is the great I am. No question about it. Jesus is claiming to be God. So when someone says to you, no, he never did, well, uh, in this passage here, yes, he did. There's no question about it. And it was a prophecy that he would be God and he is God. There's no question about it. Let's move on to number 12. Number 12. And this is Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be looking at different verses in this chapter, but this has to do um, with the Passover. So I'm calling this one the Passover and Jesus. The Passover and Jesus. Now, the Passover and Jesus are so tightly interwoven together that many Jews I have found um, and heard from their testimonies are often led to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Messiah simply by studying Passover. Uh, it's one of their major holidays to this day. Um, Orthodox Jews and, and such, they, they, um, they've observed this holiday. And when you see the life of, of Christ and what's going on at his uh, crucifixion and stuff, um, as he is becoming the Lamb of God, there is such parallelism that you see here that people just, um, even, even Jews that don't acknowledge Jesus, have been led to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by studying Exodus chapter 12 and Jesus's life. So as we take a look at this, there's going to be a, a few points here I'm going to be making um, having to do with this passage right here. And there's going to be um, a, a number of points that we'll talk about in each one. You'll be able to see if you know the Easter story. Um, and I'll, I'll point you to, to, the correction, uh, to the directions on these things. But I'll help you see um, how Jesus parallels this and the whole Passover and our Christian Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday, how all of this fits. It's, it's amazing. Just absolutely exciting to see this. So first of all, the first point of Exodus chapter 12 we're going to be talking about is going to come from verse 5. And the first sub-point I'm making here is called the requirements of the Passover, the requirements of the Passover. In verse 5 of chapter 12 of Exodus, it says, the animal you choose must be year-old males without defect. So it's got to be a year-old male without defect. It can't be any flaw in it, in other words. It can't be ill. It can't have like a, a bad scar. It, it's got to be absolutely perfect. So this reverse to a male, and it's always going to be a male, male lamb for this type of sacrifice, and it has to be in the prime of its life, and it has to be absolutely perfect. For sacrifices as offerings to God, the animal, like I say, always has to be male. You go through the book of Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus, you'll see whenever there's sacrifices and stuff, they, they use generally a male for, for covering sins. Jesus, as we all know as Christians, is the sacrificial lamb. He is the lamb of God. Matter of fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it reads, Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Did you catch that? That is like right out of Exodus chapter 12, that the lamb is without blemish or defect. We see the same thing, and Christ was like that. The sacrificial animals presented to God by man also never totally covered all of the sins of a person. In the Old Covenant days, in the Old Testament stuff, when you sinned, you had to bring a sin offering. 
and that would cover that sin. But then you'd have to, you know, you're going to go out, you're going to sin again, and the thing is, you're going to have to do it again. So unlike how Jesus is, using a lamb, a lamb, let's be frank, a lamb is not a human person. Um, the wages of sin is death. We're supposed to die for our sins, but instead we transfer our sins to the head of this animal. When, when this lamb is brought, the, the priest would take the person. When you're bringing your lamb into the temple uh, or tabernacle to be sacrificed, the priest would take your hands and place your hands on the head of the animal, transferring yourself, as it were, uh, your sins in particular, to this animal. This animal now represents you. Then the animal would be sacrificed. Um, so that's how this was set up. But the thing is, when you leave the tabernacle of the temple, you go back and start living your life, you're going to sin again. You're going to have to do this again. So they had to keep offering offerings over and over and over um, in, in the old covenant system. Well, Christ isn't like that because Christ, for one, is human. He's not a lamb, a literal lamb. He is human. And so he represents very well the human race that the lamb really can't as well. There's more symbolism with a lamb. But Christ himself is human and he is perfect. He never commits a sin. He has never uh, got any, uh, any type of sin or any bad thing that he's ever done. He's absolutely, in, in other words, he's absolute perfection without sin, without blemish, without defect. He is the absolute perfect sacrificial lamb. And now his sacrifice, unlike the animals that were used in the Old Covenant, his sacrifice is once and for all. Every time you Christians listening to me, every time we sin, we don't have to go back out and put Christ back on the cross and repeat the thing like we saw in the Old Testament days. No, his covers it once and for all. We don't keep crucifying Christ. No, we don't. He's human. He's not a lamb. It's not symbolic with him. He is actually human, and he takes our sin from us. So that's the first part, first subpoint of chapter 12 of Exodus. Second subpoint is um, blood has to be shed. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 12, it says, then take some of the blood. So they're going to take the blood. When you transfer your hand with your hands, transfer your sin and yourself to this lamb, this lamb now becomes you and it has to die. And from Exodus, um, or I'm sorry, from Genesis uh, chapter 3 with the first sin, an animal had to die. Blood had to be shed. So every single time sin is committed, blood has to be shed. So in this case here, we have the lamb is going to be uh, shedding its blood. Blood is necessary for the forgiveness here. Even when Adam and Eve sinned, as I said, God slew an animal to cover their sin. So blood is going to be collected. So they, they're going to collect the blood and it has a role to use, be used in the Passover offering. Third subpoint. And of course, well, let me just add this to that. Uh, of course, Jesus um, was whipped. He was bleeding. He also had a medical condition called hematridosis that struck him in the garden when he was under such anguish. He is uh, sweating blood mixed in with his sweat over the surface of his skin. And he is also beat up, crown of thorns, pokes holes in him. Uh, his back is laid open. Um, he is bleeding. The bleeding from the wounds, from the nails in his hands, in his feet. And he's going to be stabbed, which brings us uh, to another point later on. But let's go to the third part here. What do you do with the blood? What do they do with the blood in the Passover? Well, the third subpoint is the blood is placed on um, wooden doorframe. It's going to be placed on wood. In verse 7, it says, and put it on the, the sides and the tops of the doorframes of the houses. You placed it basically on wood. 
Isn't it interesting that God required blood to be placed on a wooden frame? What was Jesus crucified on? A wooden cross. Isn't that fascinating? That it would show the Messiah, when he dies, is not going to be stoned, um, which could cause bleeding, no question about that, but it has to have um, it's going to be placed on wood. It's, an, it's a sacrifice, so it's going to be placed on that. Jesus wasn't stoned in his death. He was actually um, crucified on a wooden cross. The fourth sub-point that we come across here, it says in um, Exodus here that you shall not break any bones. Um, Exodus twelve forty six concerning the lamb, you shall not break any of its bones. The lamb would be sacrificed with any without any bones being broken. This again is discussed in another book coming up, Numbers chapter nine verse twelve, which says they must not break any of its bones. I mean, we're going to see the same thing here again. Now, for the comparison, this is talking about, remember, this is all prophecy dealing with the Messiah. So when the Messiah is becoming our Passover lamb, he too will not have any bones broken. This is what this is all talking about. And in John's gospel, chapter 19, verse 36, John the apostle, who was an eyewitness, he was there at the cross watching it all, he wrote, for these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's John 19, 36. Right there, you can see the parallel or the prophecy from the Passover and Exodus 12 to Jesus being on the cross. None of his bones were broken. Yes, they broke the bones on the two men next to him, but they didn't break his because he was already dead. Which brings us to the fifth point. The animal is going to be stabbed. Now, when the sacrificial animal is brought in and they've transferred the sin, the priest would then take a bowl to collect some blood, but he also takes a knife and he slices or stabs the neck. So they stab the, the sheep in the neck to collect the blood. And it's amazing because I've, I've though I've never witnessed this firsthand, I've heard from people who um, have have actually from people who have actually watched this being done, and I know you can download. I've seen it on YouTube's too, where they have actually done a sacrifice on a lamb. Um, Samaritans still do this to this day, on um, uh, up by um, the ancient city of Bethel, and they still do this there at their old temple. But the, the lamb is very passive, very quiet at the moment of being stabbed. It's really interesting, which. Jesus also, like the Passover lamb, he is pretty much silent. He's passive. He's not fighting his way. You know, he could have called a thousand angels to wipe out everybody, but he's, he takes it all. And he's being very passive. It was prophesied by the Holy Spirit actually speaking to the prophet Zechariah. If you look in the book of Zechariah to go to chapter 12, verse 10, you'll see something uh, about this, um, about the stabbing of the, the lamb and uh, as a prophecy also on Jesus. It says, and when they looked on me, the one whom they had pierced. The lamb is pierced. Jesus is pierced. How do we know that? Let's go back to John, who was an eyewitness at the crucifixion in chapter 19, verses 34 and 37. Um, and it reads, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And then it says later on, they will look on him whom they have pierced, which John is quoting under the influence of the Holy Spirit. He's quoting Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. 
So we see that Jesus is stabbed also. And remember how the story goes. Uh, Jesus died much quicker than the other two. Uh, They're going to break their legs. By breaking their legs on a cross, the person suffocates and dies very quickly. Jesus was already dead. And it was important for Jesus to fulfill the prophecy that they did not break his bones. So they came up to break his legs, but he was already dead. They reported that to Pilate. Pilate hears it. Are you sure? Go verify it to the centurion. The centurion goes back, takes a a Roman legionnaire's spear, which is, by the way, only about just a little over six feet high. These are not long spears, and reaches up and stabs Jesus, and in doing so, um, finds out that he is dead because he gives him a fatal wound. And John is, again, an eyewitness. Now, some people say, some critics will say Jesus never physically died on the cross, well, then explain how you get stabbed in the heart. Um, it came through his side, probably through part of the liver, possibly, definitely through the right lung, and going into the chambers of the heart, because that's where they would test. If you're going to test somebody to see if they're dead, that's what you're going to aim for. You aim for the heart. Well, you're not going to come straight into the chest very often because you have a rib cage there that protects the heart. It's easier to go under the rib cage up to the heart. Roman soldiers know this. They're trained to kill this way. And so they want to make sure he's dead. Jesus is elevated up on a cross. They just take the spear, reach up, and stab him in the side, push it all the way up into the heart, and pull it out. And then John says something fascinating. He says, blood and water flowed. Well, it's quite logical why blood would come out. But water has often confused many people. Um, The water is actually very easy to explain if you study human anatomy and physiology because the heart sits inside of the pericardial cavity in the center part of your chest between your two lungs. And it sits in a sac, um, the pericardium, and there's a, what we call a transidate, a membrane, the pericardium, that sits around that that secretes a liquid that is a lubricant. The heart is beating from just uh, not long after fertilization of egg and, and sperm. Um, you develop a heart, it starts beating. So your, your heart is beating months before you're ever born, and it's causing friction because it's a moving object against the other cells and tissues around. So God um, designed to have one of the best lubricants in the, in the universe. He created it, and he has this membrane secrete this around the heart so the heart can sit there. And even at times when you exercise and your heart starts beating really fast, maybe getting up to 120, 140 beats per minute, you don't experience a lot of, of burning friction. Why? Because the heart is sitting in a cavity filled with this fluid, this transudate, or what we commonly call pericardial fluid. It looks like water. Thus, that's why we know Jesus was stabbed in the heart. By stabbing him in the heart, withdrawing the spear, blood would come out, water came out, appearing to be water, it's pericardial fluid. Jesus was stabbed in the heart. That's how this this is described. John's a fisherman. He probably doesn't understand all this, but he's writing what he is witnessing, and he is seeing this actually taking place. And so he's like, hey, I saw water-like substance come out. And by the way, as I told you, the Roman cross is short, or the Roman spear is very short. Because of this, we know Jesus was not on a very high cross. High crosses were used for insurrection against the the uh, the empire. Short crosses were used for thieves and robbers and such. And if you'll recall, Jesus is substituting for a guy named Barabbas, who was supposed to go to the cross, who was a thief and a murderer. So Jesus is on a short cross. He's not up really high. So just a Roman spear, which is held just a little bit above the center to one end, and 
stabbing him with this. Um, the spear point's only about two feet long, so he's not very high up. Um, so it's a very fascinating account there that we get. And many times art and movies and stuff depict him being on a cross like 75 or 50 feet off the ground. No, it wasn't like that. It was on a short cross. It's really interesting. And another point, too, that we'll come to in a, in a prophecy later on um, is going to be talking about how they use hyssop. Um, they take a sponge, soak it in sour wine, and uh, give it, stick it on a hyssop branch and hand it up to Jesus' lips. And a hyssop is just a, a small bushy plant that grows all around the Middle East. It's not a very long plant. So, again, Jesus is on a short cross, if you never thought about that. Now, the sixth point I want to make in this chapter of Exodus is the date on the Jewish calendar. The killing of the Passover lamb was to be performed on the night prior to the actual Passover. God ordained this back in the days of the Exodus to be a very sacred time period. It's interesting to note that Jesus was sacrificed on the eve of Passover also, the same time period. It all fits together so well. So that was our 12th prophecy. Let's go to the 13th. We'll do one more here today. Uh, the 13th prophecy, and this one is going to be um, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16, and we'll be looking at a verse in here, verse number 4 particularly. But it, I'm titling this, this prophecy, The Manna from Heaven. Manna from Heaven. Because in verse 4 it reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now, bread from heaven was supplied to the Israelites to save them from starvation. These, this exodus, this long camping trip has started off and they've moved into the desert and there's not a lot of food in the desert. I've been in the Judean wilderness um, south of uh, the major cities of Judah and it's a very dry and barren place. And there's not a lot of food there. It's a very hostile place to try and live. Rock, sandstone, etc. It's it's not a good place. Even a small family by themselves would have a hard time trying to, to live in there. It's not abundant food everywhere and water and things. So this is a desolate place. And this is where God leads the Israelites so that they will learn to depend upon him. And here the nation cries out for food. Um, they're upset with God for bringing them out there, and they start crying out to, to, uh, to God for food because they're hungry. And they're presented with a gift from God that God calls manna. It's a special type of bread. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's something that God had um, that would form on the ground um, overnight, and they would harvest this, and they would eat it. There were certain rules about how they would do it. But it's, uh, this is bread from heaven. God is feeding the Israelites. After a while, they get tired of this, and they start complaining to God again. Um, but God provides them with a, some type of heavenly food that the, sustains these people through, through the wilderness for all these years, for 40 years, eating this stuff. It's just absolutely amazing of what this is. And for that reason, a, a jar of it was collected and kept in the Ark of the Covenant for the longest time to preserve it. But anyway, how is this passage messianic? Well, it's very messianic because, again, if we go to the book of John, John's gospel, we're going to see Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life. In John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus says, and it says, um, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So what's Jesus talking about? 
Well, they had just made a point to Jesus that, you know, hey, supply us with bread all the time and we'll worship you uh, if you supply us with the bread. And then they say that Moses gave bread to the people and you're supposed to be like, you know, somebody as great as Moses. Well, you need to give us bread too. Jesus says, hey, Moses is not the one who gave them the bread. The bread came from God is what he's saying. And Jesus then goes on and says that he is the true bread. Um, and the bread that comes from heaven. In John 6, 33, he says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God, Jesus is the bread of God. John 6, 51, we read, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the rest of his life is the word is my flesh. Very similar passage. Do you notice how... Did, did something about communion services, you know, taking the elements uh, at the Lord's Supper, sort of ring in your mind with that one? Um, anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give you, uh, or I give for the life of the world, is my flesh. You can see there's a lot of simil- similarity between John 6:51 and a communion service and the Lord's Supper. But that's not all. If we go to John 6, 35, it reads, I am the bread of life. Here we have the ego emi again, I am. Ego emi, the bread of life. He comes to me, will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And then in verse 48, he says again, I am the bread of life. So Jesus keeps saying this over and over. It's not coincidence. He's claiming this prophecy that God gave life to prevent them from dying. I give you life to prevent you from eternal death. Jesus is the bread of life by which we can be saved. And the Israelites were saved by eating the bread from heaven. Jesus is, too, the true bread from heaven and also the only way to get to God. Well, that about sums it up for this lesson here today. And we'll be picking up some more in Exodus. Oh, there's a lot in Exodus here we're going to go through yet. And as we go... keep studying this. And I hope you're enjoying this series and I hope you're getting something out of this. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will teach you and help you to see that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah, that he really is the true Messiah. The prophecies for uh, written hundreds of years before, centuries before. Uh, in some cases, uh, this was all written around 1,400 years before Christ and how he fulfilled all of these prophecies dealing with the suffering Messiah. It is amazing. So um, until we meet again, I want to thank you so much for joining. And uh, I hope you're uh, enjoying this series. Feel free to make comments on on um, your computer or whatever um, on our page. We'd love to hear from you. And if, if God leaves, we'd love to have you join our ministry in supporting us so that we can make more of this, uh, more of these things available and get the word out. If you want uh, some time to have me come and do a presentation on science uh, in the Bible or history and archaeology or just a Bible study itself or even just some logical sense that, that there really is God and his word is true. Uh, feel free to contact me here at evidenceforfaith.org. I would love to hear from you. I would love to go out and and uh, speak to your group, and we could just fellowship and, and worship our Lord Jesus Christ together. So until you, uh, we get together again, take care, and God bless. I 
hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.